It is Thursday, March 4th here in Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schaff. Not with me is Gerald, Jared Smola. I forgot his name because it's been two weeks now. He's still wrapping up the early 2021 projections, which will hit DraftSharks.com next week, along with our earliest ever release of the MVP draft board. So make sure your insider access is all set, especially if you're already grinding best ball drafts. And because we are squarely in best ball season right now, I asked a best ball specialist to join me this week on the show. He hosts the Run to Daylight podcast. He contributes to OneWeekSeason.com, and you can find him on Twitter, at Todd from PA. Todd Burroughs, thank you very much for joining me tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So how long have you been doing high-volume best ball drafting for starters here, and, and how many different sites and apps do you tend to play on each year? I've been grinding pretty much anywhere from 100 to 300 drafts a year for about four or five years now. For a while, it was MFL 10s, which turned into BB 10s. The last couple of years, I did a lot more with the FFPC. They sponsored my podcast the last couple of years. I hit draft pretty hard two years ago, and I did a good bit with DraftKings last year. Everything is still evolving. I play a little bit on drafters. I wish I could play on Underdog, but they're not licensed in Pennsylvania. Hence, Todd from PA coming back to haunt me. But, you know, I just love the best ball format. I think, like most people, I like it for the same reason that most people like it. it you get to draft. Drafting's the the most fun part of the fantasy experience. I think almost everyone agrees with that. So to be able to do two, 300 drafts a year has been a, a lot of fun. And I got to admit, I'm a little burnt out, (laughs) you know, after grinding DFS, I I put a lot of effort into getting better at DFS the last couple of years. So I I think I'm going to turn it down a little bit, but I'm still going to study like I was going to do two or 300. I mean, you could always take a little break for a few months and then ramp it up in the summer, right? Is that a consideration or are you just going to tone it all down? It depends on how I feel. Like right Uh now, you know, I used to do 10, 15 drafts at a time Mm -hmm. and I enjoyed it. You know, the heart knows, right? When when Mm -hmm. that notification comes up saying you're on the clock, if you're sitting there going, oh, I don't feel like doing this. Uh, And that's how it's been a little bit so far uh, early this year. So We'll see, but I'm really excited about getting my podcast back off the ground. I hired a new partner yesterday, Eric Moody, who's pretty well known in the industry. And I think we're going to bring a lot to the table as far as best ball goes. Now, you mentioned some of the the places to play. Are there any particular spots that you like to play more than others at this point? I really love the FFPC. You know, there's things about every site that you like and don't like. What I love the most about the FFPC up until this point, uh, I love 28 rounds. I feel like it, it. the more rounds, the more it favors people who work harder, mm-hmm. right? So the more rounds, the more chance to, 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 to gain an advantage over the other people. So um, I also like the tight end premium. I think that brings an interesting um, aspect to it. And I also love one of the underrated parts of the FFPC is where most sites you start three wide receivers. In the FFPC, you only have to start two. 
and then you've got two flexes. So it gives you almost unlimited possibilities to let the draft board come to you, which I think, again, not everyone has the patience to do that. And it can be a big advantage if you let drafts come to you rather than going in with, well, this draft, I'm going to do X. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every draft is different and being able to react and know the, you know, rule number one of any site, you mentioned the different sites, rule number one of any site is know your rules. Mm -hmm. And the more you know, knowledge is power. Yeah. And there's always more talk about different strategies Uh, year after year as more people, more smart people get into the fantasy space. But I think it's important to stay flexible in your draft approach, no matter what your strategy is and what you're trying to do. You've got to be able to move with the draft or else you're, you know, killing a team and just starting over the next time. And also, you know, you got to realize that ADP is this moving, flexible thing. So no one could have predicted, I don't think, that quarterbacks would be going so much earlier this year than they have, right? Where in the FFPC, you'd normally get a couple quarterbacks in the second, third, fourth round, and then it would you get one or two in the sixth or the seventh. This year, 10 or 11 quarterbacks have been going off the board by the sixth round. That's just an example of how the way people play changes from year to year. So having adaptability is also in that regard to be able to see what the where the herd is moving and finding advantages based on what the the crowd is doing. Yeah, and we'll talk about quarterbacks again in a few minutes. What would you say is your overall best ball philosophy at this point? You have to have good roster construction. You also, if you're going to do volume, what's very important is your exposures. The last two years, I was going through a divorce, and I just, there are two key things. I wrote an article a few years ago for Football Diehards, and I covered certain aspects of what makes a good best ball player, and I didn't follow two of my own rules the last couple years. <laughs> One of them is that I always, in the past, had used Rotoviz tools while I was drafting took my time, looked, you know, who not only who's on the board now, but who might be there for my next pick, looking at all the different tools on roster construction. And I I didn't do that. And the other one is exposures. When you're going to do volume, it's way different than if you're just going to do 10 or 15 drafts. Mm -hmm. You're going to do 10 or 15 drafts, pick your favorite players and let it go the way it goes. Having proper roster construction having a plan on how to make each team unique while fitting it into this whole exposure of an overall portfolio, it, to me, is the art of best ball. Now, so what what is a, a proper roster construction? What would you tell people? You know, obviously, I think you can go on and on and make multiple shows about that, but what are kind of the main tenets of that proper roster construction? Well, it, 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 again, you know, uh, that's where the road of his tools come in handy. Um, it's the best if you're going to play a lot of best ball. If you're not going to use the Rotoviz tools, find a site that has the tools that can give you win rates by player um, and what constructions won the most. And then you have to look behind the numbers. In other words, like in best ball tens, it's pretty established that two quarterbacks, five running backs, seven wide receivers, three tight ends and three defenses is the ideal construction. 
That being said, there are other constructions that have win rates that were very, very close to that. So if you're in a draft and let's say I, I take Travis Kelsey in the first round, well, then I'm not going to take that third tight end. Now, depending on how the draft board plays out, I might take a sixth running back. I might take a third quarterback. So knowing what the proper construction is by sight, there are some constructions that just are going to lose you money, right? Mm -hmm. you, you're giving up two, three, four percentage points in win rate. You know, like three quarterbacks instead of two with two tight ends, it's very close in win rate to the ideal on BB10. So there's no absolute best construction by site, but knowing those percentages, knowing what you're giving up when you go to a different construction is important. Now, I talked to Darren Armani of uh, Fantasy Mojo last week about player win rates. How do you find yourself using player win rates from the past season to shape your drafting for the coming season? Because obviously you can't just draft the guys that were win rate leaders last year because Stefan Diggs, for example, now is not going in round five. He's going at the one-two turn, so you can't chase him. How, what do you, how do you use last year's win rates for the coming season? Win rate is one of the most important things to understand from a couple perspectives. I used to write for Rotoviz, and a couple of the articles I did was on how spike weak quarterbacks two or three years ago, uh, a guy like Russell Wilson who would give you 30 points one week and maybe 12 points the next versus a guy, let's say like a Kirk Cousins, who's more in an 18 to 24 point range. Because quarterback scoring is so flat, getting those guys who give you the, the spike weeks is very important. And you would find things like that year, Cam Newton had the second or third best win rate, but overall he was probably the eighth best fantasy scorer. So win rates can give you little tips like that on the type of player that you're looking for. One of the things that people don't realize is that win rates are most extreme early in the draft. It, it makes sense, right? If your first round pick gets hurt, you're going to have a 2 or 3% win rate on that guy. Uh, like I think Lev Bell, the year he sat out, had like a 2%, 3% win rate. You would think the highest win rates would come from that late round guy who has a good year, but most of the time it's the Christian McCaffrey's, Todd Gurley's who end up with the best win rates. And often it's based on not only them, but who you pair them with in the second round. Mm -hmm. So that year that Todd Gurley had his really big year, you mm -hmm. could get Hopkins at the end of the second round. There was one or two other guys. It's how you blend your first and second round that typically supercharges the best win rates. Mm -hmm. And then there are other things you can look at in win rates later to, to kind of model types of players. And then you look for, I, I heard someone on Twitter today say, I, I, I'm trying to find the next George Kittle. Well, good luck with that, right? You know, an athletic freak, things like that. But you can look for people in similar situations. Second year guy flashed. You might not get George Kittle, but you don't need George Kittle. You know, if you find a guy in the 13th round who gives you fourth round value, you're doing good. So all those are things that you can use win rates for. 
Right. It's going to be a lot easier to find two Mike Jasuckis than it is to find one George Kittle if you're looking in the draft. This Correct. And, but yeah, it never hurts to shoot for the moon. But mm-hmm. it was funny because a guy said to me, you know, was trying to compare TJ Hawkinson to George Kittle. And another guy said, well, you know, he's not as fast. He's not going to do it. And I came in and said, look, it doesn't matter. Hawkinson's the fifth tight end off the board. He's mm-hmm. not going to be the next George Kittle because there's only so much upside there being the fifth tight end off the board. When George Kittle hit that first year, or two years ago it was uh, Darren Waller, mm-hmm. you know, when he hit from the 13th round, Hawkinson is is very unlikely to put up enough to be a George Kittle. Now, you started mentioning, you mentioned some of the things that you have done wrong over the past couple of years going against your own advice. Was there anything else on that list of Uh, things that you've been doing wrong that you're looking to change this year? The biggest one is I always say you shouldn't have more than 12 to 15% of anyone in the first or second round. And it's not good to pick winners and losers. And two years in a row, not only did I pick winners and losers, I picked the wrong ones. And again, we've already talked about how the, you know, two years ago I was high on David Johnson in Arizona it didn't work. Second year, Kenyon Drake in Arizona. It didn't work. <laughs> and I didn't keep my exposure on those guys in line. The other thing that killed me the last two years, and this is kind of an interesting one, is that we use logic. And logic is a beautiful thing. But logic killed me the last two years. How so? I looked at Alvin Kamara and Michael Thomas on the same team, both going in the first round. And I said, look, you know, it's very unlikely that they both pay off first round value. So I was underweight significantly both years on both of them. So what goes in happens each year, one of them gets hurt and then the other one goes nuts. So sometimes logic can fail as well. So I'm more on the boat of in the first or second round. Sure. You want to pick winners and losers a little bit. You want to have guys Mm -hmm. that you like, but kind of let the draft board come to you in the first and second round. Don't be too far underweight on anyone and don't be too far overweight unless you have a really compelling reason. Like a guy, who was it last year? I wasn't on Clyde Edwards Hilaire. Mm -hmm. I was on Damian Williams. I thought he was going way too early. And then the CEH people got bailed out when Damian Williams, (laughs) you you know, opted Mm -hmm. out. And even then he didn't, yeah. value. So it's okay if you really believe a guy needs to be faded. Nelson Souza, who is a high stakes guy, mm-hmm. he's big on fading people. But I think for best ball, if you're doing volume, you know, try and win with a lot of little advantages rather than just crushing your early picks. I think CEH from last year brings up another interesting point too, is I wonder if it's also a, a lesson in watching out for guys that jump up in ADP. I mean, he obviously was way down the draft board in ADP before the NFL draft for any of those that started really early. But then even after he got drafted, he kind of slowly climbed up. You could still get him in round four for a little bit, then three, then two. Then he was in round one, ultimately. After Damian Williams got opted out. Right. Do you try to stay away from guys like that that make this meteoric rise? You know, like maybe you're in on him when he's in round four, but then when you see him in round two, it's like, all right, I got my Clyde Edwards Elaire. I'm going to let everybody else draft him. I try and stay away from generalities. 
if that makes sense. So I try and look at each situation independently. Uh, the key thing that I'm looking for, and I'm a tape watcher, not as much as some guys, but enough, and I've been pretty good at it. I am looking for guys who I feel have the talent to crush. Then there is what team they're on and their opportunity and all these other things. I had some questions about CEH's talent, and everyone heard Andy Reid say he's the next Brian Westbrook <laughs> and that chief offense, and they saw what Damian Williams did in the playoffs, and they jumped to conclusions. That's what I try and avoid. I try to avoid jumping to logical conclusions that are wrong. And that's where I feel I typically have an advantage over the field. I always compare it to Wiley Coyote. He's so eager <laughs> to catch the roadrunner that he goes right off the cliff. Uh -huh. You know, people get so excited. You know, like Miles Sanders last year was another one. Nelson Souza was on him and all his buddies then got on him. And Miles Sanders was going in the first round. And he just kept going up and up and up. And I, I said, look, there's enough factors. And even the main factor that I worried about didn't happen. You know, they did give him a bigger role than they had given any running back before. And he still didn't pay off the value. So I try and look for when the crowd, it's like buying stocks. Mm -hmm. You want to, you want to, you know, and buying high on one stock, you know, buying Apple low could be at, you know, 1500 and buying another stock low could be at 10 bucks, mm -hmm. right? So, but but I look for people being over enthusiastic and overlooking a factor that I think has a good chance to be a problem. I have kind of this natural inclination that if everybody seems to be or you know, if if the trend is going suddenly and heavily in a different direction than where it was, it makes me pull back and, and not want to believe it and go with it. And, you know, sometimes it's helpful. Other times it makes me dig in, in the wrong way. Like Mike Jasicki is a guy that I've been against where I might have dug in so hard that I'm not taking him even when he, you know, lands in a spot where there's no risk. So I think that's something I need to watch either way, but I do think that it helps to watch for, these heavy trends, you know, Irv Smith's the guy this week that everybody's excited about. Watch for things to go too heavily in one direction. And don't get caught on that train and dragged along with it. Right. And see, I think that instinct that you have is a good instinct. I just think that you need to then do a deeper analysis of each oh, situation sure. and not be against it just because everyone's on it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Irv Smith is a perfect example of one where that inclination of yours could definitely be good because they haven't just they haven't thrown to the tight end that much in that offense consistently. You've got Thielen, you've got Justin Jefferson. I am watching where Irv Smith ADP goes mm -hmm. because at a certain point, I'm not going to see the upside that I want. Mm -hmm. Right when I draft a young third year player like that. I want to feel like I'm going to have the upside there. So that's what I'm monitoring. My first inclination is that he's got moving up a little too far for me. But you also got to realize he was a, a highly drafted tight end. He's got the skill, right? That's one of the key things I'm looking for is the skill. Does he have the skill to crush? Yes. Does he now have the opportunity with Kyle Rudolph gone? Probably, 
you know, they could add another tight end. People assume they're not going to. Uh, but they didn't throw to Rudolph all that much. And they ran plenty of two tight end sets. They might do that again going forward. So that's an inconclusive one. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, again, there's all these factors that you have to consider when you're deciding someone's value. And even after Kyle Rudolph went down, Tyler Conklin stepped in and got a larger share mm-hmm. than I think most people probably realize. So I agree. That's one I'm watching. Exactly. You know, if Irv Smith settles at tight end 14 or 15, then sure, I'm, I'm in for some shares of that. If he gets into the top 10, I'm probably not interested in Irv Smith at this point. I'll, we'll, we'll I'll have some. He's a good enough young player that I do think 70, 80 catches is in his realm. And go back to my Kamara and Michael Thomas example. Mm-hmm. You know, what I look for is floor and ceiling, where he's drafted, who he's being drafted against, how many catches and points am I going to need at that spot? And mm-hmm. then what things could go wrong and what things could go right. And if Thielen or Jefferson go down, now he's the second best guy in that offense. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot more research needs to be done before gotcha. I feel comfortable one way or another on what I'm going to do with him. Yeah, and that's definitely this time of year. There, This is the time of year where I'll look at a guy and I'll think, I don't like him anywhere close to where he's going. And then I do my projections and I'm like, oh, actually, I like him two spots ahead of where he's going. So exactly. that's exactly. definitely the important part of doing and then, it. And then with exposure... And just the nature, you know, one of my big, you asked about my big philosophical beliefs. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest ones is, is that, you know, if you think about a projection of 190 points, let's say for an Irv Smith, and, the, you know, there's another guy that is 170. Mm-hmm. So all these people are just going to draft the daylights out of Irv Smith. Mm-hmm. But if you consider 16 games in a best ball season, a 20-point projection is only a point and a half a week. There's a much better chance that any NFL player is going to get injured and injured early in the season than a point and a half or two points a week. So that's why it's good to mix up your exposure. And I use four or five different factors. Like, let's say I have Irv Smith and then a round or two later, Kirk Cousins is there. I might have Kirk Cousins sitting there and I might have another quarterback like Jimmy Garoppolo sitting there. That's when I'll I'll stack, mm-hmm. right? I'll use it as a tiebreaker, mm-hmm. you know, because again, the difference in the projection isn't that much. And what you're trying to do in best ball is hit that spike week. You know, the week when... Cousins doesn't throw a touchdown to Irv Smith. Well, hopefully your other quarterback and your other tight end are giving you a big week. But that week where Cousins gets 30 points and Irv Smith gets 25 and you get both of them, that is the type of thing cumulative over 16 weeks that can give you that little bit of an edge to win a a best ball. Now, it sounds like you use stacking more as a tiebreaker between players that are, are closely ranked as opposed to a strategy heading into a draft or even like, a, okay, I just took Robert Woods. You're not necessarily thinking, okay, I'm going to try to get Matthew Stafford. Yeah. It depends again on the type of draft you're doing in general, philosophically, I'm a tier drafter, right? You know, we've all, since we first started fantasy football, we've paid for the magazines where they had tier one, tier two, tier three, I have guys in tiers, and I won't jump a tier for a strategy in a traditional best ball ever. 
I'm not going to chase a stack and take a guy from a lower tier just to get a stack. Mm-hmm. In a tournament, stacking, I think, is much more important in a tournament where you where you have that week 14, 15, and 16 where you need to advance. I think stacking is much more important in those. But in a traditional best ball, you're right. I'm not going to drop a tier to follow a strategy. Now, I know from our discussion before the show, you told me there's one big thing that people need to consider with their best ball drafting. What is that one big thing? The big thing is that we've been spoiled. I grew up in an era where the salary cap didn't go up 10% every year. Mm -hmm. And the last five to seven years, every year teams have been able to hide their mistakes because the salary cap went up. This year, because of COVID, the salary cap is going to be down about 10 to 12%. The big thing is right now when you're drafting safety, guys who are low-priced, locked into roles, they're not going to get cut, are a huge advantage. And it was funny. I sent you that note about the big thing. And then the next day on Twitter, I saw someone in NFL saying, next week's going to be a bloodbath. (laughs) There's going to be a million cuts. So that's the big thing. The big thing is that you're going to see the market flooded and the things you think you know about teams and rotations is going to change dramatically Mm -hmm. more than any other season. Yeah, with that coming and with free agency coming, I've been pulling back on drafts a little bit over the past week or so, and I'll be ready to ramp it up again in a few weeks. But it's a it's a tough time right now. I think it's especially tough at, at running back, but we'll get into position by position in a minute. Actually, let's jump to that now and start with the quarterbacks. And you mentioned it earlier, how the quarterbacks are going um, earlier this year than they have most years It's not surprising if you look at how they finished scoring-wise last year. We had nine quarterbacks. This group of nine way up the scoring ranks at quarterback, and those are the nine guys basically going in the first six rounds of ADP. So it's not starting quite as early as it was last year when we had Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes at the top of things, but right behind them, it's getting bunched up a lot sooner. Are you targeting one of those top nine quarterbacks? Are we maybe overrating how the quarterbacks finished right now. Well, I just did one draft on the FFPC where I passed on Watson and Wilson because Terry McLaurin was available in the fifth round, which I thought was too good a value to pass on. But then I had to chase quarterback a little bit. I ended up with Brady and Carson Wentz and Jimmy Garoppolo as my three quarterbacks. So it's like anything else. Where you are in the draft will determine what I'll do. Like if I'm on a corner... I'm going to make sure I'm not going to miss the run. I'll just take two guys. I'll bite the bullet a little bit on where I feel they should be going Mm -hmm. because of positional scarcity. I I have an old saying, it's always better to start a run than to finish a run Mm -hmm. because then you're just, you know, you're, you're sitting there saying, I got to get my first and second quarterback before everyone starts taking their third quarterback because I'll, I'll I'll just, you know, I'm going to be out of this thing. In that draft, I was very proud of myself because a couple times I would take quarterbacks and then the next round I would scoop a value that because of the run had left a huge value. So I mixed it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that it's hard because no one's going to know until after the season if there was some, you know, like I, I'm big on Jalen Hurts right now. He's, he has question marks 
but he has that rushing upside and he's going in the 12 to 18 range in most drafts. And I started getting him very cheaply. You know, if you can find a couple late round guys, mm-hmm. you know, who are going to crush ADP, then it could absolutely be a huge advantage. But I'm not seeing those guys right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to guess on those guys. I think there are candidates. I, I mean, I, I've come out with multiple teams so far where I had Tom Brady as my first quarterback and still ended up comfy with the quarterback combos. Me too. Matt Ryan is a soft quarterback value right now. That's one that I like a lot. I think that people are underestimating. He is now in the Ryan Tannehill role with Arthur Smith. Mm-hmm. And they've got great wideouts. I, I like that call. I, I think what people are talking themselves into right now is the possibility of Atlanta drafting his replacement at fourth overall. To me, Matt Ryan's going to have to really suck over the first half of the season to have a rookie replace him this year. I don't, I'm not worried about that one. And I don't think that he's not going to open the season as the starter. So I think he's a soft one in that range. Kirk Cousins is never going to be drafted inside of QB1 range. So he'll always be available. A couple of other spots that I think could have big upside are if I start with maybe a stud quarterback, I think that pairing Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston together as second and third QBs works out because at at worst, I'm getting the Saints starting quarterback for this year as my backup. And I could be getting two starters because Winston's either going to sign with the Saints because he believes he can start there or he's going to sign somewhere else because they want him to start there. So I'm taking Winston ahead of Taysom Hill right now. I started out on the Taysom Hill side because reading his contract, expecting that he's the likelier Saints starter. But, you know, all of the reports and, and rumors out of New Orleans seem to point to the Saints favoring Winston as that option. Are you staying away from those guys or how are you treating those uh, Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston at this point? I mean, I hate stacking quarterbacks <laughs> uh, because you might not get one good one, right? Uh-huh. Like what happens if they both just don't play that well? I mean, I, I like Taysom Hill in a bubble because he does run the ball. I like Carson Wentz moving to Indy. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a, a top 10 you know, in that 10 to 15 range, which is what, you know, historically in best ball, if you could get two 10 to 15 guys and you would get some nice spike weeks out of them, I don't think there's ever been an early quarterback taken who's had a good win rate. Most of the time that Pat Mahomes, that Lamar Jackson, every year there's that, you know, maybe Josh Allen is the guy this year who had the great year last year and he's being drafted at the top of his range And then it just doesn't have quite as good of a year. What if Josh Allen, with all the running, gets dinged? I mean, I'm more with the quarterbacks taking the guy who drops in any given draft. Mm -hmm. You know, typically, if you do enough drafts, you'll find guys who are dropping a half round here or around there. I'm looking to scoop value. And so that when I have exposure to guys, it's out of value. And I do like Carson Wentz. I think he's uh, an early value late. I think Daniel Jones and Ben Roethlisberger also fit that category right now. Ben is definitely on a couple of my teams already. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good call. I mean, Daniel Jones was going on the fringe of QB1 territory last year, and now he's the low QB2, along with both of his top two wideouts, at least at the moment, are going outside the top 60. So that's to me, is a low-cost buy with some upside. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm a Giant fan. Uh, te- <laughs> technically, I guess you could say. Uh-huh. Still still technically a Giant fan. I've been so discouraged by the ghetto monster. But Daniel Jones, yeah, I mean, he ha- also has some uh, rushing upside. Mm-hmm. But Jason Garrett is just so bad. Yes. I mean, he's just so bad. Yeah. Um, it, it's really hard for me to get excited about him. Yeah, I think Jalen Hurts, Tom Brady, Matt Ryan, and Carson Wentz are the guys in that mid-range. Ben and Jimmy Garoppolo a little later. And and I like Sam Darnold. Mm-hmm. I, I think that Sam Darnold, whether he ends up on the Jets again or someone else, he fits the bill of what I'm looking for, which is a talented guy who's been in a bad situation. And then you just hope that his talent gets to shine and he's almost free. Right. Now over at running back, is there a certain time in the draft where you need to have two or three on your roster? Typically in the FFPC, I like to come out of the first, I think it's 14 rounds with uh, three quarterbacks four running backs, four wide receivers, two tight ends. I am a big fan of modified zero running back, which means you take one running back in the first or the second round. And then in, you know, historically, the fourth, fifth, sixth round running backs have a much bigger bust rate than the wide receivers in those areas. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you'll find the Calvin Ridley, Chris Godwin types, young wide receivers on the upside, Terry McLaurin. Uh, Last year it was DK Metcalf. I like to get those wide receivers, you know, my second and third wide receivers in those areas and then come back and attack running back in, you know, that next round of, uh, and and again, you know, if you only need two of them, and you have a stud like a Derrick Henry or a Kamara or a CMC. But again, that is not a hard and fast rule. Mm-hmm. I sometimes start drafts with three running backs. Um, mm-hmm. My first draft of the year, I had CMC at 1-1, and I came back uh, with DeAndre Swift at 2-12 and uh, Miles Sanders at 3-1. You know, so I'm not going to drop a tier to do that, You know, but the key thing is I don't like taking too many running backs in that fourth to sixth round range. Yeah, it it especially gets touchy in there right now with so many guys in situations we're unsure about, so many guys that are facing free agency. So yeah, I think it gets tricky if you leave the first three rounds right now without at least one running back. Yeah, Uh, typically typically because of positional scarcity, the reason those fourth to sixth round running backs are being taken is because they're the best left. Right. And people who didn't get enough feel the need to take them. And that's where, again, resisting that urge. And then if you're a fan of Sean Siegel's work and zero running back, it's not about just taking running backs late, but the type of running backs you take when you take them. A couple guys this year who are going really late, Duke Johnson, uh, Naheem Hines, those guys who catch passes, those third down backs, who, if the the starter gets hurt, might also get some carries, mm-hmm. are great guys to, you know, if you don't have a great second running back, get a couple guys like that because they'll give you on most, one of them on most weeks will catch four or five balls for 50 yards and give you the 10 points you need to at least be in the ball game at the position for a second running back. 
and then you it, it allows you to get that those stud wide receivers in the the mid early rounds. Yeah, and Tariq Cohen's another who's going especially late coming there's off the tight end. The top three are now going very early, definitely inside the first two rounds. It depends a bit on which site you're playing on. Obviously, FFPC with a, a point and a half PPR. They're all being pushed up and all, I think, inside of the first round in ADP at this point. So I guess my question is, are you trying to secure one of those top three guys? Or I wonder if maybe people are chasing the win rates of Travis Kelsey and Darren Waller from last season a little bit on that position. Well, in some of the research I did using the Rotoviz tools, it was interesting. First of all, you would think on a tight end premium but Travis Kelsey had a better win rate on Fanball than he did on FFPC. And the big reason was he was being drafted at the mid to end of the second round mm-hmm. versus the mid first round. And so if you got a Camara, and this is, goes back to that supercharging effect that I talked about. If you had Alvin Kamara at one, four or five, and you got Travis Kelsey in a Fanball draft last year, I mean, you you know, you you almost would have to trip on your dick not to <laughs> to, to to win or come in second, right? A constant issue over here. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I feel like there is a huge advantage to having a big tight end because it does seem that there's not that mid-range group of guys that you feel strong about. The biggest thing is it's not who you take. But it's who you take versus who they take. And then, in other words, if you get Kelsey and he has another big year and you've got an eighth, ninth round tight end who only catches 50, 60 balls, I mean, you're, you know, you're going to have to really nailed your first round pick that you took instead of Kelsey to make up for that, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, again, this is where exposure comes in and I probably will be just taking them at ADP. Uh, you know, I would be fine being even weight on all three of them. I do think what you said is a very fair point that it's chasing a little bit, but I I don't want to be underweight on any of them. And, and, and right now I'm struggling to find those couple mid-round tight ends that I feel really good about. So that puts more pressure on you to take the tight ends when you get the opportunity. I like when either Waller or Kittle slides a little bit into round two. I know it's getting less likely that they get into there, but if I can get like Devontae Adams or Tyreek Hill or a running back that slides late in round one and then have a shot at Waller or Kittle early in round two, I'm okay with that. I'm certainly okay with Kelsey in the middle of round one, especially if we're talking FFPC drafts, but I'm also not forcing one of those. I mean, you you talked about how the win rate was higher for Kelsey on Fanball. I just think, I think it's important to remember that Kelsey's season last year was what the third 300 point PPR season ever among tight ends. I believe Darren Waller was a hundred points ahead of anyone else. They were outlandish scores versus other recent seasons. We've had six other guys who reached 260 PPR points since 2009 among tight ends. So even though those two were way up there in win rate, if we look back just a year before, Travis Kelsey was seventh. The year before that, he was eighth, if we're looking at FFPC best balls, according to Fantasy Mojo. So fine with those guys where they're going. Certainly, especially fine if they slide past ADP, but I'm not forcing it right now. Yeah, and the fact that Kittle got hurt 
made Kelsey even more valuable. And there's no guarantee that's going to happen again. Kelsey is also another year older. You know, it's never going to happen until it happens with age. And now his ADP is basically fourth off the board in FFPC. I think there's far less chance of him repeating Mm -hmm. what he did for best ball teams this year as he did last. So we talked about those guys and we talked a little bit about TJ Hawkinson. Is there any level that you like at tight end, even if it's not exciting, is there a level that you've kind of settled in and started looking for maybe a first, if you didn't get one of the top three or even just a second? If you look at from Noah Fant, Dallas Goddard, Logan Thomas, Hunter Henry, Mike Gusecki, Robert Tanyan, Kyle Pitts, or Evan Ingram, I think all of those guys at ADP have a chance to make up the difference that you need. So there's definitely options. What I'm not finding is that later guy, you know, that guy in the 10th to 13th round. And so if you aren't careful, you could miss that run. But I do think when you look at like a Dallas Goddard at pick 70 versus Kelsey at pick four, Fant at 66, Logan Thomas, who had a very good year last year, 79, Hunter Henry, 79, ADP, Mike Gusecki, 84, Evan Ingram is the poor bastard child right now, 97 ADP. I think you can build winning teams with any of those guys. I agree. Evan Ingram's been a target for me. I think Hayden Hurst belongs with that group in ADP too and is not going in that range. So I think if you... He's only a little later, 104. I'm looking at it right now. And the, uh, and my favorite guy, though, the, uh, John U. Smith is going too late, 121. He was one of my most owned tight ends last year. Now he's getting away from that situation, most likely, mm-hmm. where they're running the ball all the time. I think John U. Smith is the best pick on the board. I think he has the potential to be so. It, it was weird usage for them with him last year, even just in terms of tight end playing time and tight end targets. But the the ability is certainly there, and you don't have to pay that much to get him. And you don't know where he's going to go. Right. He but, ends up in a place, you know, like Indianapolis, where they actually will probably use him. Again, what do I like? I like talented guys who are who are not going real high. Think of floor and ceiling, like Daily Fantasy. Right. That's where, you know, we were going to talk a little later about transitioning from daily fantasy to best ball. You want those guys who have the floor, but they also have a chance for a ceiling. I mean, think about it. Where would John have to go where he he couldn't pay off 121? You know what I mean? So, I mean, he's got a pretty safe floor. But if I said to you, John o. Smith in the right spot was a top seven tight end, would you laugh at me? Nope. That's why I like him. Yeah, I think he and Irv Smith are very similar prospects at this point. I like Irv, but now he's on that rocket ship you talked about. Right. I think the range that I like the best based on upside versus cost is just outside the top 24 at tight end, where we've got O.J. Howard, Chris Herndon, and Gerald Everett. All those guys are going in the range where you're probably taking a third tight end, maybe a fourth if you're doing a 28 rounder and feel like putting one on. I wouldn't be surprised if one of those guys finishes inside the top 12 by the end of the year, especially Gerald Everett at this point, I think is a nice buy because he's going to land somewhere in free agency. He's likely going to land somewhere that wants him and there is ability with him. Yeah. I really liked him as a rookie 
And I just stopped chasing it like a year or two ago. I don't disagree. And a lot of smart people agree with you. I'll throw out a couple different names. Anthony Ferkser, you know, with John Ugon in an offense where they do use the tight end and he's played well. But the guy that, to me, it's just shocking that he's not getting more love is Donald Parham. Very, very athletic guy. Mm -hmm. If Hunter Henry indeed is gone, I mean, he's going at pick 264 in the FFPC. You know, like he can be the third tight end on every one of my teams right now, and Mm -hmm. I would be perfectly happy. Over wide receiver, you talked a little bit about the the range in rounds four, five, and six where the running backs don't tend to be very good, and we do get – some nice win rate wide receivers. DK Metcalf came from that range last year. Stephon Diggs came from that range. Keenan Allen. Do you have any particular favorites as wide receiver targets or even just a range, whether it's that range or later in the draft? They're all going at pretty reasonable ADPs. Mm-hmm. I think Odell Beckham's ADP and Cortland Sutton is a guy I've been drafting a lot of right now. I think Cortland Sutton's probably the best value on the board. To answer your question, Debo Samuel is going well after Brandon Ayuk, and it wouldn't shock me if that ended up the other way mm-hmm. by the end of the year. I think they're both really talented. And one injury-plagued year, and people tend to forget how talented guys are. And then late One of my favorite 27th, 28th round picks of all time right now, uh, (laughs) who fits what I believe in so deeply, is Travis Fulgham, Uh a guy who just played like dominantly. And then for some mysterious reason, Doug Peterson benched him for Alshon Jeffrey when he came back. Now you've got a team that has shed both Jeffrey and Deshaun Jackson and just give me that talented guy who shows who has showed me he can do it in the NFL and give me a price that's basically free and I'll draft him as as many t- you know if and if and if he doesn't do it and you know it was a mirage okay there goes my 27th round pick in every draft mm-hmm. but i mean he's a guy that i think could give you top 10 round value uh, every you know, I like Rager's ADP too, but mm. but Fulgham's ADP right now is egregious. Yeah, and take both of them, and then you've got Rager if he goes off, and you've got Fulgham if he doesn't. And may, you know, that. maybe Travis Fulgham turns into what Charles Johnson was with the Vikings a few years ago, where he flashed and then completely disappeared. But as you said, you you don't have to pay for Fulgham; he he's free at the end of the draft. You take a, a lottery ticket on him. There's lots of value at the position. When I do start more wide receiver heavy, I get to, you know, round six, seven, eight. And I'm like, man, I just want to keep taking wide receivers here. Brandon Cooks, Jarvis Landry, Devontae Parker. All those guys are going outside the top 40 at the position. Later than that, I mentioned the Giants. I I do like, I, I especially like Darius Slayton because of the spike week potential he has versus Sterling Shepard. But I also think I'm underrating maybe some volume spike week potential for Sterling Shepard at his, you know, outside the top 60 price. Nicole Hardman is somebody that I'm surprised is not going a little higher than he is right now. I think people are still treating their burns from drafting him last year because he didn't really help anybody. And he was going like round 10, even inside the single digits as we got closer. You mean Christian Kirk Hardman (laughs) or or Nicole Kirk, you know, both of them very similar and both of them in uh, very cheap where they're at. 
Um, I, and that's where, you know, we talk about tiebreakers. If I like a running back and a wide receiver about the same, it is better to take that running back because positional scarcity, it's it's easier to get. And that's something that you that's another reason that it's good to do high volume best ball, because mm-hmm. you're always constantly seeing where people are going. And you know where you can get a guy and you know where the dips in value are at, at positions. But uh, yeah, that's, I think that, I think Darnell Mooney is a good guy late. If Allen Robinson leaves and maybe even if he doesn't, I'll add that name to your list. I think people are underestimating Curtis Samuel and Nelson Aguilar. And I like both Rondell Moore and Bateman, the two rookies. Well, that's a good transition into talking about rookies in general, because we had Darren Armani on the show last week. He said that his studies of the FFPC best ball numbers found that adding four to five rookies to your best ball roster at this time of year, especially dramatically increases your win rate. And it's because there are some rookies that are going fairly early. We've got Travis Etienne, Najee Harris going inside the first four rounds, but everybody else is bound to rise up in ADP once they have been drafted and we know where they're going. We can start projecting everybody. Do you specifically target rookies at this time of year or are you this season? Both rookies and free agents. Uncertainty, taking advantage of uncertainty, playing the odds, you know, which free agents are likely to end up in a good spot. And, you know, uncertainty drops a guy anywhere from two to three rounds. I mean, if it's a super talented guy, sometimes it can work the other way mm-hmm. where they're going a round or two higher than, you know, like what if they end up in a shitty place, mm-hmm. right? But there's always, I remember Pierre Garçon a few years ago, you know, was going in like the 15th round before free agency. And then he ended up with like an eighth round ADP. It, it, stuff like that happens every year. So, yes, I think that uh, rookies, this is the time to take your shots on rookies. Mm-hmm. and But I would also add free agents as well. Yeah, and I, I don't think any of the rookies are going at outlandish prices. I don't tend to be the guy taking Harris or Etienne, but I think it's okay to get some shares where they're going. Same with Devontae Smith, Jamar Chase at the top of the wide receiver board. I guess the one rookie that I'm really not on is Kyle Pitts going right around the end of, of tight end one territory as a rookie. It's just not a, not a position where betting on rookies tends to pay off, but are you getting some Kyle Pitts shares right now? No, I haven't watched the tape yet. And, uh, and that's my bad, but in general rookie tight ends, it's not the safest bet. Um, I know he's supposed to be supremely talented, but you've got two out of three things that can go wrong. A rookie tight end, B, you don't, you know, what if he ends up on a team that drafts him and doesn't know how to use him? We think that these teams draft these guys and are going to use them properly when we find, like last year, Evan Ingram, you know, he's a seam splitter and he was running Jason Witten routes, mm-hmm. right? Like every reasonably intelligent guy on Twitter knows that that was asinine, but the one guy who didn't know it was the guy who was running plays for him. So, you know, uh, that's those kinds of things. I don't see the upside that I would want compared to the, you know, like, okay, his talent, he's got this much talent, but you look at those other things and then you look at the other guys who are being drafted right around him and 
you know, I'm not saying I wouldn't draft him, but in about eight drafts, I haven't. Now we're coming to the end here. You kind of alluded to it before, but um, you know, you do DFS content for one week season during the regular season as well. What do you carry over from one format to the other best ball, to DFS that helps you build winning lineups in each? Well, it was funny because a couple years ago I had a, a DFS year and the, the last two years I got close a number of times. I came in 30, second in the millionaire maker this year. I had four or five other top 10 or 12 finals, but I didn't get the top five, right? And it's that one, you know, like I won like 20 grand a couple years ago. I had like three or four teams that just, you know, gotten to that top five, you know, gave me that 10 grand hit, the five grand hit, the three grand hit. I had a couple hits that were, I think I had one or two, three grand hits this year. But it started from me taking what I did in best ball and applying it to DFS, not the other way around. And then this year I added something to in DFS that now I'm trying to bring back into, uh, w- which is what I've done a lot in, in uh, best ball anyway, which is, you know, building the best lineup that I can. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, the thing that you look for in DFS is a floor and a ceiling right? I love drafting guys who have a safe floor, but their ADP is stunted because we're not sure about the opportunity or the coaching, Mm -hmm. right? Like maybe there's a player in front of them and maybe the coaching we're worried about, or maybe the landing spot we're worried about. But we know that even if, if everything doesn't go right, they should pay off their ADP from a floor perspective those are the guys that I like the most because if one of those barriers gets knocked down, they have the talent to crush their mm. ADP. I'm looking for guys who can crush ADP, not on every pick. I don't mm. need it on every pick, right? but it's the number one thing I'm looking for in a player is a guy who has a safe floor and there's something holding them back or they just haven't done it yet. Like we talked about the Calvin Ridley's and the Chris Godwin's, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I was drafting the daylights out of both of those guys the last couple of years, because I believe they were going to be second round picks. JM to win talks a lot about, you know, the guys early in the season who are five and $6,000 who are going to be $9,000 by the end of the year. Or the guys who are three or four thousand dollar receivers who are going to be six thousand dollar guys, identifying them, identifying their talent, and that they just haven't done it yet. That's the mm-hmm. only reason they're in the eighth round is because they haven't done it yet. That is something that I am really interested in in trying to access. Todd Burroughs is at Todd from PA on Twitter. You can find his content on oneweekseason.com as well as the Run to Daylight podcast, which is getting ready to get fired up again with a new co-host, Eric Moody. We look forward to that, Todd. And thanks for joining me on here tonight. Hey, it was my pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Head over to DraftSharks.com now. You can check out the whole lineup of knowledgeable guests we've had on the podcast this offseason. You can also find my season scoring reviews on quarterbacks, running backs, and wide receivers, tight ends and defense coming, including IDPs. Even sooner, our initial 2021 projections and live MVP draft board will be hitting the site. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at DraftSharks. I am at ShaufDS. That's S-C-H-A-U-F. For Todd Burrows and the entire DraftSharks crew, 
I'm Matt Shaft saying thanks so much for sending with us. 